This is Hamlet to Hamilton Exploring Verse Drama. I'm your host, Emily C.A. Snyder. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 10, New Arthur, New Millennia. To be. To be. not to be. To be or not to be. That is the question. Hello, friends, and welcome to King Arthur in the 2000s. How exciting is that? This season and season two, we've been going through King Arthur verse drama English language plays from 1587 to 2019, and we finally are going to be hitting our own millennia, which is really rather exciting. We've been looking primarily at Lancelot and Guinevere scenes, which definitely pick up uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, and continue through to our own time. I am joined, as always, by Nick Ritaco, who will be reading for Lancelot, Colin Kovark, who will be reading for everyone in the world, with the exception of Guinevere, which I will be taking on. A reminder that you can find all texts for all plays on our website, hamlettohamilton.com, so that you can follow along and take a look at the verse, at the line endings, at the white space, at all the things that are in the tool boudoir, and see how the authors used um, or manipulated or played with or innovated. Now, something else that I want to note as we move into the 2000s is that while I do feel that for any playwright who uh, who has passed on, who has gone to their rest and is doing fine now, um, that I, I feel that we're a little bit more free to dig into their work, um, to look at their problems, such as with the last episode uh, where we looked at Stark Young and and just saw the difficulty of some of his line endings, for example, and his placement or rather lack of use of white space. Or when we were looking at the 1587 guy and how he was just chunks of text. So I have no problem calling out um, playwrights if they're on to their eternal rest. However, since now we're going to be moving into working with living playwrights, the velvet gloves, the kid gloves are going to be on a little bit more because just like you who's listening there at home or in your car or, I don't know, on on a lovely tropical beach, wherever it is that you're listening to my dulcet tones, you are still alive right now. You are capable of learning, of exploring, of making mistakes, and of innovating and of, as as is said, failing again, failing better. So while you may, the listener, hear some things that, that you look at with, you know, your fellow living playwrights and take a look and go maybe, oh, that's something that doesn't work for me. Or, oh, that's something that's really interesting and it does work for me. Regardless, there's going to be a lot more gentility than perhaps we've shown to those who did very well in their own time, and no one's feelings are going to be hurt if we, for example, say to Stark Young that that your line endings are terrible. They are terrible, sir. They are terrible. <laughs> anyway, 
So the other thing that I want to point out is that today's episode is brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. If you are enjoying this series, as we are very glad to be giving this education, this college-level education free of charge to everyone in the world, and wow, some of the countries that are listening in, hello, so lovely to have you here. Um, But if you find this valuable, if you want to help support it, help want to make season three possible, in season three, we're going to be returning to the Tool Boudoir, and we're going to be applying it to looking at soliloquies and scenes. We're going to be talking about some exciting things like Janus lines and stichomythia and how those are helpful in creating soliloquies and scenes, uh, part of our tool boudoir that we haven't really talked about yet. So if you would like to help support this podcast, you can go over to patreon.com backslash Hamlet Hamilton and sign up at any level. Uh, you'll also get access to the super secret Facebook group to exclusive content on the Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. Um, And I also want to put this out because I've started to get these requests. If you are looking to have me look dramaturgically at your new verse, you can contact me at either turntoflesh at gmail.com, which is our parent company, our parent theater company that helps develop new Shakespeare plays for everyone Shakespeare didn't write for. Uh, Or you can contact me at hamlettohamilton at gmail.com and uh, we can work out with you details to get one-on-one specialized eyes on your verse drama. We can do that for you. So without further ado, we're going to jump in to today's episode And before we fully jump, I do want to give a brief nod to what in the world happened to verse drama in the 20th century. So let's talk about verse drama in the 20th century, that is, in the 1900s, in the century just prior to the millennia that we are currently in. And It's interesting because as we've been talking particularly about season two, as we've been sort of looking at the history of verse drama in the English language, there has been this feeling that verse drama just sort of ceased to exist pretty quickly after Shakespeare. I would hope (laughs) that if you've listened this far in season two, we have dispelled that myth. The other myth that sort of rose up or thought is that there was only closet drama in terms of verse drama that is published but not performed work. And while certainly there were significant closet dramas, uh, such as C.J. Reithmuller, who seems to have influenced quite a few of the people in the second half of the 1800s and their verse plays with Lancelot's jumping in and out of casements, right? Um While that was certainly influential, there are influential closet plays, again, the only reason why he ended up publishing it was because of a mishap with with the production that was supposed to go on. There still were productions. If you remember in 1895, there was that huge verse production that had music with Sir Arthur Sullivan that toured not only England, but also America. So this myth 
is not helpful. Once again, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of the epic work moved to the big screen, basically, moved to the movies. It wasn't written in verse, but it had that same sort of sense of this is big, this is epic, this is melodramatic. And on the stage in the 1900s, what we had was um, the quote-unquote modernists. Although, again, if you're talking to a Shakespearean, early modern is early modern English, which is the 1500s to like mid-1600s. If you're talking to an American dramatist, the modernist movement is with Eugene O'Neill and everything that sort of happened in the first half of the 20th century, the 1900s, so from about 1900 to 1950. And I am personally of the feeling that no one should get to call themselves modern because it is always modern times. It's like saying, we're calling ourselves today. Well, you can't. It is always today. Anywhoozle. That's my own my own issue. But again, what was commercially happening on stage was extreme realism, incredibly small casts, which again, verse drama tends to be bursting out of its seams, just like musicals do. What we do see is a continuation of verse drama hybrids with musicals, but they're largely published. There's an interesting one, and you can go on hamlettohamilton.com and check out the timeline, which has the timeline of all the major verse drama King Arthur plays. You can take a look at with links, so you can read the whole play if you like. But for example, in 1905, just one year before Stark Young's Guinevere play in five acts, there was Guinevere, a lyric play written for music by Ernest Rhys with music by Vincent Thomas, and it was performed at the Coronet Theater in 1905. And then Reese went on to found the Everyman's Library, which you may have books from that imprint. He also knew Walt Whitman, he knew Rossetti, he knew Yeats, Pound, Wilde, D.H. Lawrence, Evelyn Waugh. He founded the Rhymers Club. He's got a Celtic background. Um... In the same year that Stark Young is writing Guinevere playing five acts, a guy named Graham Hill in America, I believe, is uh, publishing Guinevere, a tragedy in three acts, also in verse. Um, we don't seem to have much information on him. If you happen to know more about Graham Hill, let us know. Just a few years later, a guy named Morley Stanor also <laughs> puts out a King Arthur verse play. We've got stuff actually regularly and sometimes more than one uh, almost every year from like the early 1900s. And then it peters off and sort of turns into opera fully around the 1930s, 1940s. Then in 1960, we have Camelot, which while it's not written in verse, it is from the musical tradition, which, as we know, was highly intertwined with the creation of verse drama. So, kind of interesting. There is, it seems, a a dearth of plays, a dearth of verse plays, at least about King Arthur, from the 1930s until we hit the 2000s. And then suddenly uh, we start getting more verse plays, which is just interesting. But the curious thing about the 1900s, what sort of happened in that century, this is where you got Yeats was in Ireland writing 
and producing a ton of verse plays. Now, having looked a little bit at Yeats' plays, they were they're known to be semi disasters. Um, they never really took off as much as he wanted. And there's been some interesting scholarship around why not. But honestly, if you look at his text, it's got too much poetry and the line endings are weird. Um, I imagine that in the future, we will take a deeper dive into Yeats. But the important thing is he didn't give up. He was like determined to keep writing verse plays and put them on. So he was doing that. You can read some interesting criticism of his work in The Third Voice, Modern British and American Verse Drama, which was published in 1963 by Dennis Donahue. It's one of the only pieces of theory that we have about verse drama, you know, beyond this podcast. Um, But to be honest, it's much more criticism than it is theory, So you can order a a copy, and we will have links on um, to the the Amazon page. You can order a copy, but but again, presume or rather realize that it's kind of Dennis Donahue saying why he hates Yeats and why he loves Eliot, but without understanding how the verse is affecting him. So speaking of Eliot, T.S. Eliot was also credited with reviving verse drama. So this is the weird thing. Yeats was credited with reviving verse drama. And he's being credited with reviving verse drama at the beginning of the 1900s when we just had three major completing plays in 1895, one of which which toured with music by Sir Arthur Sullivan. So like, what are you reviving, really? And then Eliot comes along in like the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, also writes a handful of verse plays, which he also has problems, honestly. Like, it's beautiful. I love Murder in the Cathedral, and I hate it because the lines of verse are too long to be performable. And again, the poetry gets in the way. Once again, Help support season three, and we will talk all about <laughs> all about the the failings of T.S. Eliot and and the ability to like tell a story through verse. Um, but T.S. Eliot is credited with in the nineteen like in the middle of the nineteen hundreds, reviving verse drama, and then Christopher Fry, at the same time in England, is credited with reviving verse drama. Practically concurrent with <laughs> with with T. S. Eliot, um, and you look at Christopher Fry, and he has so many crimes against Schwumpf and crimes against line ending, but he can tell a story. So his stuff was more popularly received, but mostly popularly received because, like, you listen to recordings of it, and the actors. Just treat it like prose. They don't treat it like verse at all. And yet, when I was preparing this podcast, I put out a thing on a couple like Shakespeare and verse drama Facebook boards saying, who should I make sure that I cover? And so many, well, so many well actually guys were like, you have to cover Christopher Fry because he's, 
you know, the sine qua non of reviving verse drama. And it's like, uh, well, A, he actually did not do verse great. B, none of these guys in the 1900s were reviving anything. And in fact, again, if you look at our timeline, just looking at verse drama plays, not uh, for, for King Arthur, only King Arthur, not even mentioning uh, a, a ton of other plays that um, that people wrote on on different, you know, on, on different subjects. There is such steady creation and frequent performance of verse drama. Um, but it seems like unlike in the 1800s where or, or even before where, there was a community around theater. It seems that more there was a disintegration in communication that seemed to happen in the 1900s so that everyone seems to think and feel, even Richard Hovey wrote about this right at the turn of that century, everyone seems to feel that they're alone in writing verse drama. And absolutely in this millennia, as I've been meeting so many of you, and again, uh, it's it's so cool. We've had, you know, people write in from all over the world and who are just like, I thought I was the only one. And you're not. You're not the only one still writing verse drama. But we do risk amberizing or mummifying verse drama if we keep looking back to like 1587 and never innovating beyond that. So I actually do want to point out one playwright that I would like you to take a look at. Voldemort Young is a guy he wrote in the 30s. And he was writing for um, for this group that did sort of like big pageants. So what's interesting, though, is that uh, so his play, Birds of Rhiannon, a Grove play, is kind of like part memory play, part mask. It has more to do with King Arthur at his death and sort of looking back over his life. Um, so there's no Lancelot Guinevere scene, which is why we didn't end up doing it. Um, but what's interesting is that he uses the innovations that were happening in poetry at the turn of the previous century, at um, La Belle Epoque where we have Ezra Pound, we have T.S. Eliot, we have uh, people who are responding to the Impressionist movement happening in art and breaking away from formal writing of poetic verse to writing more experimental verse, stuff that we see now that is published in poetry magazines, but that for some reason hasn't come back over in force as a tool for verse drama, um, which I just find really weird. <laughs> it's really weird because, again, the beginning of the 20th century was so full of really exciting stuff happening with poetry, breaking forms, creating new forms, the creation and absolute liberation of free verse, stuff that could be 
so incredibly helpful for verse drama as we're looking at character. Uh, Stuff that I would say has been way more embraced in terms of presentation by those who do spoken word, who do slam poetry, who rap, who are still considered somewhat on the fringes of polite society, who is so stuck in iambic pentameter. And what I'm saying is, A, you're not alone in writing verse drama. B, you have a lot of catching up to do with how you're approaching verse. So the stuff that we're going to be looking at in the new century, in the new millennia, in the 2000s, almost all of it is going to be in even stricter than the previous century's iambic pentameter. We're going to hear um, very much the attempt to sound or even be passed off as Shakespeare. And and I, I think that's fine. Obviously, we've we've had that consistently throughout all the other centuries. But I'm also, yes, very interested in what happens as right now, we are gaining a community of verse dramatists who are learning, who are not reinventing the wheel, but are learning and able to build off the wheel. What sort of vehicles can we make? What what can we invent? I mean, there are wheels on airplanes as well. How can you fly in the realm of verse drama? What are the things that you're drawn to in music or drawn to in modern poetry or drawn to in other art forms that you want to reflect into your verse drama? What do you have to teach um, rather than just constantly reinventing the wheel? Now, again, I think it is good practice to learn how to also master iambic pentameter, uh, just as it's good practice to master learning how to play the C scale. But you also need to know the D major scale and the D Phrygian scale and so on and so forth. So that's my rant, which is to say, no, verse drama's never gone away. (laughs) Yes, we are in danger of helping it stagnate. But even more, friends, we are on the precipice because of these new forms of communication, of being in touch with each other, of seeing each other's works. Put up your stuff on YouTube and tag us, please. Oh my gosh. Keep an eye out for Turn to Flesh Productions. We're actually going to be doing something called the Soliloquy Project, where you're going to see little snippets of the plays that we've helped develop. We want to see the plays that you've developed. We want you to be able to share your work and to get fans among each other, to see what you're creating and how you're innovating. We do not have to be isolated with our closet dramas thinking no one wants this. But we do also have to show to the people with all the money that we haven't gone away. And you should very much produce us, please. And there will be plenty of butts and seats. And there is so much beauty that you have to write. Let's take a little break. And then let's dive into our first play of the 2000s. 
See you in a second. Hello, friends. Turn to Flesh Productions, which is our parent company in New York City, that helps develop new plays in heightened text with vibrant roles for everyone who's underrepresented in classical Western art, is starting a new project called The Soliloquy Project. What we're going to be doing is selecting various soliloquies from some of the playwrights that we've worked with and featuring some of the actors who've become the best new verse actors in town and putting it on our YouTube channel for you to get a sample of some of what's being written in verse drama. But we know we're not the only ones creating verse drama. So we want to invite you as well, playwrights, actors, multi-hyphenates, to take one of the favorite soliloquies in new verse, make sure you have permission from the playwright to do it, and if you are the playwright and you're an actor, you have permission, and upload it on your YouTube channel, and then tag us at Hamlet to Hamilton, or tag us on Twitter, Hamlet to Hamilton, or you can find us at Hamlet numeral two, Hamilton. (laughs) Either one will work. But we want to see what you've been working on. You can also use the hashtag Soliloquy Project, all one word. We're so looking forward to showing the world how awesome verse drama can be. So friends, it's time to dive in. I am going to turn it over to the recording that we made last summer, 2020. I'm recording this in June of 2021, and it's been a year, hasn't it, friends? And for those of you listening in the future, this, this is the end of the pandemic times, and that was the beginning of the pandemic times, and the future of theater was very much in question. But... It encouraged us to do this little project thing, so we're grateful to it. So it's time for Nick, Colin, and I to dive into our first play of the 2000s. This is The Death of King Arthur by Matthew Freeman, which is published through Playscripts, and we will have a link to it. It had one performance, at least at the time of recording, that was in New York City, um, in September to October of 2001 by Guerrilla Repertory Theater, which is here in New York City. Matthew Freeman himself is a Brooklyn-based playwright with BFA from Emerson College, which is actually also my alma mater. And uh, we will link to his blog. As you can imagine, The Death of King Arthur is based on Le Mort Daughter, which has inspired more than one verse play. If you remember, we've talked about how essentially there'll be a groundbreaking new version of the Arthur myth that comes out. And then there's about half, you know, at minimum about 50 years later, and then continuing through for a while, there'll be various stage adaptations. So this is one of those. And let's take a listen to what the text between Lancelot and Guinevere sounds like what you think about it, and what Nick, Colin, and myself got out of it. This is again The Death of Arthur by Matthew Freeman, 2001. 
as we are moving into modern living playwrights, again, we're going to do two things. We are going to keep uh, Shatner line endings, if they did Shatner line endings, because it is important for those who are listening to hear that this is what the verse did. And it's going to become more common. Again, we just need to like sort of overemphasize the ends of lines. Okay. I won't go possibly a full stop. I'm, I won't go full Shatner all the time. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I don't think any of these will, will necessarily call for that. Yeah. Two, we are going to be critical, but not cruel. Because again, every verse playwright that I've met thus far, and again, I hope this is not true going forward, but the verse playwrights that I have met thus far, everyone is self-taught. Everyone is basically trying to figure out the tenets of verse based not on verse and poetry itself, actually, but based on what Richard Barton and your high school teacher told you about how Shakespeare used verse. And that's limiting Um, because that's saying that's basically introducing people to music, but only ever playing them Mozart. Right. Exactly. This is the conversation we had at your workshop. I was like, I cried when I realized Shakespeare was jazz. Yeah, (laughs) actually. (laughs) So Colin, so, so the season one talks uh, of Hamlet to Hamilton talks about this in depth, but Colin, Mm. uh, since we're moving into the modern era and I, for those who may just be dropping in today, <laughs> would you mind actually giving a, a little synopsis of this? Because I do find it is the, the most crucial thing for modern verse playwrights to learn. And the people that we're about to read did not have the benefit of this information. So they are doing the best trying to recreate something that was taught to them in a very limited way. Do you mean just the actual musicality of it? The musicality of it, yeah. Well, sure. Well, what was remarkable about your workshop and also about this podcast? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Season one, give it a listen. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Is that it breaks the verse down into its constituent elements and lets you know what they are instead of you just, you know, trying to be someone who likes poetry and steeping yourself in the different sounds, the way that verse is often taught in even, even in a theater school with, you know, I have a a degree in acting. Um, Your workshop exposed me to much more of the constituent elements of verse and why you would use a different type of verse phrase, whether like a spondy or a trochee or an I am, It let me know what those were so that I then, when I'm doing verse, could tell if it's good verse or not, why <laughs> I'm having trouble with a particular line. Or if something feels really good, I could pick it apart and tell why it felt really good. Right. And this knowledge then enables you to not be so precious or... Well, to find your own voice. Right. And, and yeah. to avoid, you know, it, it prevents you from even thinking of falling into the Shakespeare voice (laughs) and being precious about it because you realize Shakespeare isn't precious about it. Mm -hmm. He breaks his own, his quote unquote, his own rules, which he didn't come up with, which were actually (laughs) invented later and then taught to us in high school and then in college. You understand that this is a toolkit and that you are free to use it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then you've just referenced music. Yes. Yeah. It's all music. All of this is music. All right. With that, we're going to take a look at Matthew Freeman, Death of King Arthur. This is from, this was also based on the Tennyson, which is kind of cool. It begins at the end of the story. So he decides to start after the Grail quest, 
so that you just get all the good stuff of the fall of empires and whatnot. Guinevere and Lancelot do have a second scene, but I decided to just do this first scene with us because the second scene wasn't as as meaty and kind of repeated information. Gotcha. Yes, and this is 2001, so we've left yep, almost a century ahead. Yep, and this is Act 1, I think Scene 2. All right, Guinevere and Lancelot in the forest. I am not him that I would have you see. You are not he that I would have you be. How do you not follow me on broken branches? and not make a sound until you mouth it. I have learned silence on my humbling course. A humble sinner? I am not rare now. My sword and my shield I laid down to expose the common man that knelt before the king. This is a place of quiet. Yes, I feel it. And you are not of silence. I have learned the virtue of a moment past unspoken, and failure of a man who cries for grace. This earth is silent. Are you like this dirt? The crying man is never pridelessly begging the heavens for his dignity. All dignity is only pride made proud. The prettier pride. So you keep no dignity. Does not this dirt show stern and unwavering contempt for all that would convert adults? Does not a plant reach upwards to its growth? Are you like flowers? I am like a man. I cannot surmount the blooming flower of my sin, which is inherent in me. We are not good, not certain like the trees. Tis no comfort, but you are comfort to me. I do not know why. For we are beloved. I am your same, although returned in shame. Should not we take the sign of your failure, as one from God that he sees how we act? Knew you not before what he saw us all. He sees both what was and what will befall, and a warning was made for us to quit before not only hell, but while we live, the end comes tragically and we are found. Found how? We have for years met in this way. Before the king and all, you nearly told what your sin was. As I sat and held breath, you heard the one who called for us to kiss. That was a mock to use us. Abuse us. If they will, they cannot break my bonds. When will you ever see that you are not infallible and your brash youthfulness does not match the lines etched across your face? So I am what? Not Sir Bors, that old horse. Do you claim childhood beside other men? At least I have the strength to raise my sword. (laughs) Remember when I wooed in tournament? For Bors, who barely could defend your name. With you, my champion, off in a sullen sulk, and no man by my side could raise his hand, because the accusation was the poison of their kin. Even then were you my absent companion. Bors showed his love. How can you question him? I question him not, but make comparison. Would you that I were even keeled and calm? Would you that I were sturdy, tried and true, the dullest housewife in the quiet stead? A trusty bread knife sitting in the cupboard. Would you your love was his, his safe old hands? I would my love was Arthur's back again. Arthur? Bores, these old men, pious peacocks, who sit aloof and make grand gesture far from battlefields, from jousts, from dragons. Bores saw the final moment of a great quest, but only watched. Other men sacrificed, so he could tell their tale as conqueror. I am jealous, too, of those that can see God. 
As we are now, we're far from such a goal. How so? Because we're in love with each other? Have you taken Christ's love into your heart? My Guinevere. Have you made me but flesh? You are flesh. More. I love your flesh. It's warm. I'm more. Yes, so much more. But flesh is least. It's your body. How can it be said least? My soul is more. Where's that? Show me your soul. I'll show you every day, and then it's less. Your spirit lessened by my eyes' discovery. My spirit? By my eyes. Is made too bold, too naked. I am naked in your eyes. Yes, always naked. Mm -hmm. I see through your clothes. You see through more and further still inside. So, Lancelot, I love Arthur. I love him. I will find a way to love him evermore. I will touch Arthur better than before, because by God, I'm his queen, his Guinevere, and by your right, it's safer for you gone. Safer? Do you love me safely, distantly? Shall we observe our lives in retrospect, and calmly say we lived them safe from harm? Where is the glory in your safety, love? Glory resides in chivalry, in love, in worship, and in sacrifice, in prayer. Why marry you defiance and glory? What victory is won by constancy? Whose throat is cut by constancy? There's none. You shame me, and you shame yourself beside. Before the court, you ask for forgiveness. Of Arthur, who smiles and bows his head, too true. You see? The others know that we are two. The Sangreal quest has tamed you to my heart. You blame me only for the failure past. I wandered mad, bloodied by lesser men. I'm going to take that back. Mm. This sand grail quest has tamed you to my heart. You blame me only for the failure past. I wandered mad, bloodied by lesser men. I cared not for any quest but Guinevere. I slept by churches. Each one turned me out. My horses stolen, my shields stoned, broken. No god smiled upon me. What god is he that turns a simply joy to want for pity? How dare he challenge me, this god, for you? I'll best them all. I best them still. No god is so vast he may crumble my stone will. You condemn me to vow heresy by me. I will run from you to escape your fat and never see the in this Camelot. I deserve a champion, deserved heaven. Lancelot too deserved it, but in test forsook the only love that could raise him. No, I did not. Only you raise me above a woodcarver, a basil men, none else. Can you compare me to God and not see that this will hurt me more than compliment? I mean to show you where you are in me and cannot call you else but gracious scent. Alone again with Arthur, home again. Now in thy milky mind do remember that in respect I bid you see me never. Exits. Guinevere, from she my body's center can never leave too long. I love and lover must be despite myself. I know this God. He forgives me as I rage, for he knows who put these tempests inside my boiling breast. Why did he make us with these parts inside? 
only to mock us for their plainest use. These hearts, these bodies, are all built broken, and wordless fervors fragment when too spoken. Exits. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in here. The the middle bit when it was like flesh, heart, soul stuff, like that was easy to pick up on. And her speech yeah. about, she had a little speech about God that I liked. Some of it though it felt like I'm trying poetry. I'm trying religion. Like, but there is interesting stuff. And some of the lot, yeah. weird line endings are actually quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to ask if I'm really fascinated. The first thing I'm fascinated by is mm-hmm. how he is employing rhyme hmm. which is sometimes a couplet I'm, I'm curious it reminds me and this is a compliment mm-hmm. uh it reminds me of how one of my favorite modern poets kate tempest will employ rhyme and sometimes couplets because she she will kind of tumble freely in and out but you, you always can feel that it's intentional it's part of the music that mm-hmm. she's trying to create and i wondered if there was a clear, because like, I noticed sometimes a rhyme is hooking together, uh, you know, it's helping energize yeah. the sharing of a line, the movement from one character's speech to another, and also unifying their idea. It's also employed at the very end. The, you know, the last line of the, the scene is a line, couplet. The, last two verse, the first two lines, the first two verse lines of the scene are couplets. Or, well, not they're not a couplet, yeah. but they—I mean, they—they they are rhyming. It's a, it's I mean, a shared. It, it's a shared couplet. A yeah. shared couplet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not him yeah. that I would have you see. You are not he that I would have you be. Yeah. Yeah. And I was curious. Uh, the line endings. The the weight of the line endings wasn't as as clear to me. I know we were trying to emphasize anything that was shattery, but I think I they had, worked more. I think they, they, might did. Have they did. I think it's just they worked better. That was all. <laughs> they did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he he used weird because you can use weird line endings. It just has to like help you swoop into the next line. Into the next right. line. <laughs> this brings up one thing. I think we should clarify too, because in our when you talk about checking your line endings, mm. um, are we keeping in our approach mm-hmm. for our purposes? Right. Are we keeping the the old rubric of if there's no punctuation, just blast right through it? Keep going. So uh, again, in order. Okay, so no, it's <laughs> the short answer. Well, that's why I bring it up. For <laughs> okay, so again, there's an entire episode on this. So go take a listen for more for more on that. Oh, but no, 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 okay. no. But it's important. <laughs> uh, so let's let's touch base about it. So for our purposes, as we're doing this, particularly the modern verse, we're going to really overemphasize the line endings with like almost a half pause or a full pause or something, even if there is no punctuation. There is a school of thought that says just elide. Dear listener, I meant and jam, not elide, and jam the line ending. But I'd been recording for over three hours in an extremely hot room. Forgive me. That is to make it as if there were no line stop at all, as if it were a single line of prose. I don't think that's helpful either, because if you wanted a single line of prose, write it like prose. Like, do your job. However, if you're not overemphasizing and trying to make people hear every line ending because they may not have a script in front of them, the different approaches to line endings include to change your pitch so your voice can go up on a line, it can go down on a line, to elongate a sound, to to sort of energize the end of the line, (laughs) right? You can also lean 
on it. So like, and, and these might all be, you heard that leaning also like had italics, but also had an elongation, right? You can take a full stop and then you can elide. But I find that elision almost always only happens when the playwright has been like lazy with their verse, to be quite frank. Because otherwise, some sort of emphasis. And so what you'll hear, especially from us in the earlier, the 1500s, the 1800s pieces, is like we're naturally, we're frequently what we're doing is we're emphasizing leaning and changing, changing pitch on the ending word, sort of giving it a bit of oomph. So it might feel like an elision because we're, we're not like stopping the energy, but we haven't dropped the line. And what you will also frequently feel, and this is why I call it schwumpf, is you dive into the beginning of the next line. And I find that diving into the next line happens harder and harder, the less end stopped a line is. So the more you have a weird line ending where it's not on punctuation, the greater likelihood you're going to dive into the next line. There was one here that I think had the word ignorant at the beginning of like had in the schwumpf place. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, infallible. That's it. Guinevere has a really interesting line ending that I do like here. That is, when will you ever see that you are not infallible? And if I take a break there, like you're waiting to hear what I think he's not. So infallible lands harder. If I were to say, when will you ever see that you are not infallible? Like, that's fine. You still get the sense of it, but like you don't get the oomph of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I will say as a character, I felt she had a bit more character. I got what she wanted. I didn't really get that she had, I was kind of sad that she didn't have any passion or not much. Well, yeah, because it felt like this scene is, I mean, they they were in opposition in terms of what it is that they wanted in this scene compared to some of the others, which have been these romantic love scenes. She was very much like, I'm going to figure out how to love Arthur. Yeah, we're done. We're done, you know. Um, so and, and- yeah, the passion wasn't necessarily... Which is fine, but but we aren't starting her story with her struggling against herself, against her decision, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, which isn't a bad place to start, except for the part where we were going back and forth. I, in the skin of Guinevere, when we, when like we were finally talking about flesh and it's warm and this, that, and the other, I was like, okay, like I could get into this. Yeah. When I'm undressing, undressing Guinevere with, with his eyes. Yeah. Using the word naked. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it was, this was the first time we've used the word naked. In like for any sure, yeah. of these, welcome to the new millennia. Yes, always naked. <laughs> yeah, I see through your clothes. <laughs> but even so, she still is like done. There, there's no struggle in her, and and mm-hmm. I I I was yeah. sad for that. I I personally enjoy it when, it for, particularly for this set of characters, when they're constantly vacillating. Of like, I'm in this. No, I should stop. No, I'm here. No, I'm like I I like the vacillation personally. This reminded me of the very first Guinevere who was talking to Mordred, who was also like, I made up my mind. I'm back with Arthur. Like, calm down. So that was interesting. What did you feel as Lancelot? Because this is an older Lancelot, which is cool. I liked that. Yeah. It felt peculiar to me too, because it was this, it felt to me like he was asking the same questions of her throughout the whole scene, which frustrated me a little bit because I felt like we started and finished kind of in similar, maybe that was the acting, but to me, the te- the text felt like- No, I think the text does stay. His te- his, his stratagems for- 
getting this woman to admit. What does he want? Well, I, I, I've, I've felt that it was this, you're pretending to love Arthur or, or you're not mm. admitting that you, you love me, that we have this special, right? that this is, this is the route you should take, uh, you know, go the Lancelot route. I just felt like he was kind of void of creativity and therefore a little void of like strong character. Mm. I felt that like I this is this was any lover saying until I mean like yeah the the, the naked stuff was kind of fun but that felt like it, it, it inched towards something that felt more visceral yeah like that was a that was a start but everything else I was like this is there is nothing particular to their relationship in in my text necessarily that I felt like like I was tapping into other than the plot stuff you know Arthur Bors. well and a few of the like I like that he's asking the question that is starting to be asked in some of these later pieces too of like God versus actually I felt you had a stronger relationship to God. Your character had a very strong relationship to God. Not necessarily. You were bringing to- it up. I, I felt yeah. I felt like I felt like in the past couple of renditions of of these types of scenes, Lancelot sort of lost in some of them lost like his. Yeah, connection to to God, um, which we mm. found in the table round is something that like we we found was really important when it came to the <laughs> relationship with Guinevere. Was everything um, everything to him? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so finally, we get that back. But it's it's curious. I kind of love that he's got this anger towards God. Yeah, he's like screw that guy. But yeah. that's still a, but it still feels like he's got a very personal anger. Mm-hmm. Which which I, I a personal relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, which I liked. Some of the philosophy I had difficulty, though, like understanding in the moment. In some of the poetry, I wanted him to pick metaphor as opposed to multiple yeah. metaphors, which, again, is a very common. We talked about like this happens all the time to diverse poets. Shakespeare does it all the time. Look at Richard II. And it's like in the first or second scene talking to John of God. And she literally has two metaphors going simultaneously. You can cut out every other line and that speech makes sense. He did not need double makes poetry. Sense. It's like this happens all the time. you know that's that is the point of workshop and editing i do want to point out i there's a there's a nice callback in here Mm -hmm. that i appreciate the sangrail quest Mm -hmm. yeah the sangrail it only had i think one line here but i like that i was like it's spelled differently he has read (laughs) yeah did i mean that that one epic mallory that came out has influenced a lot of people yeah, I get. I would have liked for Guinevere to know. I would have liked m- more talking about why I'm into Arthur. Mm-hmm. There's duty and there's like fear of God. Yeah, uh, as why as to why you shouldn't be into Lancelot, <laughs> but not yeah. a lot of uh, yeah. But but even Lancelot, I wasn't specific about like what we had, other than like it. It kind of felt <laughs> it's terrible, but what it felt like, and maybe this is what the playwright is going for. What it felt like was, oh right. I had a few rounds with you. You were fun, but like, you're a little needy now. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, why are you still like, didn't you, didn't you get the arrangement before? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I sent, I even sent you a text. I didn't just ghost you, dude. So like, yeah. <laughs> you know? as opposed to these other Guinevere's where like, even the one where she's like, I've kissed you, I'm yours, mm-hmm. was very specifically into Lancelot. Yeah. So I think something I'm going to be coming back to a lot whenever we read new verse is specificity. Mm-hmm. And th- this reminds me actually of, remember the one we read that had like all the big songs in it? Yes. Yeah. And like, it was all just sort of like vaguely lovers saying vaguely lovery things. Like, so you this could has, have pulled and plugged it into any other like love duo, you know, yeah. 
character and it would have worked. I felt that that way with a lot of Lancelot's text. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel that way with Guinevere's text, like in terms of I was definitely giving plot points and and sort mm. of setting us up in the world, which definitely early an early scene needs to do. Um, but I didn't feel the specificity of the character of mm-hmm. why Arthur, why Lancelot, why God. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, when I was talking about weird and being afraid of her and oh, Christ, Christ, like, At least I felt that. that viscerally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All of this, because we've talked again about it being in the head or the heart or the gut or the groin. So it's all kind of like hanging out up here, but, but like a little bit far away from me and occasionally mm-hmm. on me. And then like, it was very calm. I yeah. find sometimes they write Guinevere is very calm. And yeah. I felt interesting you say calm. Yep, I guess maybe there was some, even in Lancelot's text, and again, it could have been how I read it this pass-through, but I felt like the stakes were not there until his soliloquy. His soliloquy felt Mm. a little more right to me. Yeah, there was no one. It's interesting, too, how many of the other scenes will have someone, like, listening to them just to raise the stakes. Like, this one, no, I wasn't afraid they were going to get caught. Me neither. No, the stakes weren't there. It was, uh, I was like, oh, there's another page of this scene. I wonder what... You know, that was that it was sort of like, oh, okay. Right. And then the soliloquy was when I first sort of dropped into it. And I felt like, oh, maybe, maybe I dropped into this a little bit here. Yeah. yeah. But it felt it felt specific. It felt specific to his love for her. Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. Well maybe that answers like I had a question for the group. Do we feel mm. then that this soliloquy is justified? Is this a revelation of a secret? I feel like this scene should start with the soliloquy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> and with then, you. and then Guinevere enters, and now we have a scene that, like, the uh, you know, I, don't I, know. I want. Yeah, more. I would love him to know from his quest on the Grail. I would love him to start angry at God, yell at God in a soliloquy, have Guinevere come on, and essentially let it be a trio scene. Mm-hmm. Sort of like oh, these two and end yeah. of the well because this is end of the affair, Graham Green, where yeah, where <sighs> the person that he thinks Guinevere is cheating on him with turns out it turns out to be God and not another man. <laughs> like is that book? It's, it it's right so good, early. right? It's oh, so good. Yeah. The end um, of the affair. I I listened to it. Uh, the Colin Firth has narrated it and done very well. Ah, uh, yes. I have a lot of Graham Green up here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but I guess that's the thing is uh, I do. I really like a lot of the philosophy that he's bringing in. I I wonder if he was a little afraid to bring in that melodrama. And I wonder if that's in, in the same way. Remember, we talked about when blank verse first started, right? They're sort of figuring it out. And that's where it felt like blocks of text. Mm-hmm. Then we moved into that that early 1800 part, which is coming out of Commedia, which is coming out of Restoration Comedy. And there's, it's kind of trying to vaguely reclaim it, but we're going to wink and nod and we're going to do silly rhyming couplets or we're going to do Tom Thumb. We're going to kind of, we're going to do verse, but ironically, right? And then we got into the late 1800s and started getting serious about verse again and and sort of like really getting into the extraness of it. And I wonder if modern playwrights who are, again, self-taught, trying to like reverse engineer verse yeah really if there's a sense of like i have to do this seriously and because i wonder again if that because there's a sense of clenching Mm -hmm. in this that he doesn't want to get it wrong whereas again i'm thinking hovey and when we looked a little bit of it some of it was like all over the place in terms of meter you know it wasn't all pentameter or tetrameter there was was this fire to it this life to it that yeah it's missing a little bit right and 
And I love, I love the fact that we're not necessarily taking it ironically, although like the Seussification of Romeo and Juliet, which is a script that's been done a lot and is available, winks, right? But I guess I would just say to any verse playwrights that are out there, like, go ahead and feel your feelings more. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Thank you for joining us today on Hamlet to Hamilton, King Arthur Through the Ages, as we go into our own millennium, the 21st century. Next time, we're going to continue looking at plays from the 2000s and on. And keep an ear out because we were able to have a special round table about the round table with our next three playwrights, uh, which will also include yours truly. If you'd like to get more bonus content, you can join us over on patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton, where, for example, at the start of season two, we had a special Zoom hang for our patrons, as well as some of the verse playwrights that we're going to be featuring in the next few episodes. So if you'd like to join us, again, over on patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. We will see you continuing with King Arthur through the ages in our own millennium next time. Thanks for listening. Hamlet to Hamilton is a special project of Turn to Flesh Productions Audio Division. Turn to Flesh is a theater company in New York City that develops new plays in heightened text with vibrant roles for women and those underrepresented in classical art. In other words, we create new Shakespeare plays for everybody Shakespeare didn't write for. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder, with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kovarik, and original music by Taylor Benson. Special thanks to our patron, Madeline Farley, for helping to produce this episode. Special thanks to Esther Williamson for transcripts. To learn more about us or to support the podcast, visit hamlettohamilton.com or sign up to become a monthly patron by visiting patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. Other ways to support include leaving us a great review on Apple Podcasts or spreading the word about us with the hashtag Hamlet to Hamilton or H2H using the numeral two in between. Are you a verse playwright, an educator, an actor, an interdimensional space traveler with a love of blank verse? Well, we want to hear from you. You can join the Turn to Flesh community and the community of Hamlet to Hamilton by finding us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram at Hamlet to Hamilton or at Turn to Flesh. Thank you for joining us, dear friends, for all things true, good, beautiful, and frequently in verse. <laughs>